Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Jonathan Carey, the founder of Legal Vision and the nonprofit Blue Star PR. I'll be your moderator today for today's program called Israel's Contribution to Well-Being. This program is part of the club's summer series called The Art and Science of Well-Being. We also welcome our listening and internet audiences and invite everyone to visit us online at www.commonwealthclub.org. Now it's my pleasure to introduce the first of our distinguished speakers, Eliza Lauder, Israel Humanitarian Fellow in Guatemala. Eliza is from San Francisco. She's majoring in international agriculture development and international relations with a minor in Judaic studies. Her work experiences include Urban Adama, an urban farm near San Francisco that integrates Jewish traditions with sustainable agriculture and social action, internships with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Senator Kamala Harris, and Camp Kesem, a community of college students that supports the children of parents battling cancer with free year-round services. While spending this past fall semester at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Eliza worked at Israel's headquarters in Tel Aviv. Would you please welcome Eliza Lauder? Hi, my name is Eliza Lauder. Um, and actually, yesterday night, I came back from Guatemala after spending the last six weeks there as a humanitarian fellow for the organization Israel. So Israel is Israel's largest humanitarian aid organization. It was founded in 2001 and since its founding has been in over 50 countries. In 2018 alone, Israel was in 23 countries and two of its more recent countries it's gone into um, includes Mozambique after the cyclone and um, in uh Colombia working with uh, Venezuelan Venezuelan refugees. Um, Israel is an apolitical organization, and it really embodies the whole practice of being the first in and the last out after an emergency or um, a humanitarian crisis. So Israel has really, to me, and what always struck me with the organization was Israel uses Israeli expertise in trauma and the experience of dealing with where Israel has been in the region um, and uses their experience to help others across the world. And it has nothing to do with anything with politics. Israel, Israel has actually gone into several countries where they have not made it known that they're even with the organization and have worked entirely through other local organizations to really lend their expertise, such as Iraq. That was one of the places they went into. And no one knew that they were from Israel, didn't go for the recognition for the organization, just really went in to help. Um, Israel focuses mainly in three um, sectors of help in medical response, in WASH, which is water, sanitation, and hygiene, and then in mental uh, and psychosocial support. Um and really, it's just been across the entire globe. One of its most notable um, projects it's done is working with refugees um, from various uh, Muslim countries. And so they're working in Greece 
and um, in Germany currently. And it's really incredible. Also, the bridge building that naturally comes out of these projects. Um, there are Arab Israeli, Jewish Israeli, Christian Israelis all working to support Muslim refugees. Um, they've also been really involved in the paradise fi fires that happened in California. That was actually when I was working in the headquarters, the first project I worked on. Um, and that affected, you know, people I know. And it was really incredible to really be on the ground and see all of the support that they were giving and giving long term. So I worked in Guatemala specifically and Israel went into Guatemala and on June 3rd, 2018, um, after the Fuego volcano erupt erupted, the eruption took out almost caused almost 200 casualties um, with over 300 missing and displaced over 12,000 people out of their homes. Um, Israel went in two days later and first worked on emergency response. So they went through local shelters and offered psychosocial support, um, also offering the wash services and any emergency response that was really needed. And when they got to the ground, that's such a unique thing that Israel does, really assess the situation there. So they went in, obviously, with goals, but then adapt the goals based on what the local community needs. And after most organizations left the area, Israel stayed. And that, to me, really encompasses, again, very Israeli values of tikkun olam in, in Judaism. That's also a, a very prominent value. And also what Israel really embodies is that making long-term sustainable change. So Israel then assessed the needs on the ground and saw that there's two sectors that were really needed help. And it was in mental support, mental and psychosocial support, and in disaster risk reduction. Um, Guatemala is seventh most vulnerable in the entire world for a natural disaster. So something like this will happen again. And they saw that the communities needed to be more prepared for when something like this did happen. So through a program called a disaster risk reduction program, Israel assessed the situation and went into various schools in the district that were most affected and worked through local organizations, including many uh, local ministries, such as the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education, sat down with them first to see what their needs were. And then they took the initiative to really addressing what the needs were. Um, and Israel trained 30 different teachers from different schools and then those trainers took the training that they got in disaster risk reduction and brought it to student leaders who then they trained the entirety of the students in their um, schools. So I came at a really interesting time of Israel where they had already trained all of the tr trainees, basically, um, and we were coming in to assess their emergency drills. So I had the privilege of going into these schools and seeing the student leaders and the teachers carrying out emergency drills so that they had the local capacities to then strengthen their response when a disaster happened again. Um, another key aspect of the response was psychosocial support. Um, in Guatemala, there are 0 0.54 psychiatrists for every 100,000 inhabitants and only five psychiatrists outside of Guatemala City, which is the capital. And also with the culture of 
the communities there, they found that no one really talks about the mental aspect of what an emergency causes. Um, there's so much trauma that comes out of seeing your home completely destroyed, losing family members. Um, and obviously this was really needed to be addressed. So Israel trained a group, a local group of psychologists and social workers in art therapy and psychosocial support through providing kids um, art and different forms of movement to really address the psychosocial issues that they were facing. Um, and then those trainers went out to train other uh, social workers in this Israeli resiliency technology. And it's also, it's really interesting because the methodology and the art therapy that is now used that Israel implements is the same ones that is used for kids in bomb shelters in Stilroth, Israel. So it really takes Israeli expertise and applies it to these countries all around the world. Um, one of the projects that came out of this training of so social workers and psychiatrists and psychologists was each of them had to take the knowledge that they learned and apply it to a different community. One of those communities is called the Atos, which is um, a government camp that was made for the villages that were forced to evacuate after the Fuego volcano eruption. Um, this houses over 600 individuals, 50% um, or now over 50% of those individuals are children. And immediately after the disaster, there needed to be a place where kids received support. Um, 16,000 kids were out of school immediately following the Fuego volcano eruption because schools were either the infrastructure was destroyed or people were needed, um, schools were needed as emergency centers for people to go to. Um, so the child-friendly space provided a space for kids to ap apply their um, skills of social socialization, which they lacked because they weren't in school, and also to really gain the social and mental support that they needed from trained professionals. Um, we are now working... When I was there, we were working in this place. We go three times a week, and we worked with the kids in kind of taking the next step from the emergency response and really seeing what these communities needed to further strengthen um, their community's resiliency. Um, th we saw that after the disaster, obviously, of course, had a significant effect. Um, but we saw that to begin with, these communities really needed so psychosocial support that they weren't getting. Um, and also the whole, the mothers also really needed a place to be able to feel like they were supporting their community's resiliency and their community strengthening. They live in a small, very tiny government camp that they've lost all their possessions and needed a place to kind of, these women now can gain leadership skills and really take part in the strengthening and the further strengthening of their communities. Um, and in these communities, we work with the kids and we use the psychosocial support and training. Um, and it's incredible, really. It was an incredible experience for me. As he said before, I'm working in international agriculture development and international relations. And to be able to really tangibly see on the ground the real work that these organizations do. And it's incredible because Israel works through local organizations. 80% um, of Israel workers are 
from the local communities. And so once Israel leaves, these programs still last. And I think that's really the core. What always drew me to Israel and how I heard about this fellowship was that it wasn't as impressive to me how many countries Israel went into. It was how many countries Israel effectively pulled out of and kept the sustainability of these programs alive. So right now in this child-friendly space, we're working with seven um, social work students who need to complete internship credits or um, and get part like participate in the community, and they are hopefully going to take over. We're in the process of forming a formal partnership with the local university and the idea is that the community takes over running this space so that israel can pull out of this community and still have this development space for kids to go to um and which is really needed another show i think of just the sustainability of these programs is one of the what's one of our pilot schools that we did the disaster risk reduction program with um they have, as part of a final project in high school in Guatemala, you have to do a community project. And a group of students from one of our high schools came up to us and said that they wanted to implement this disaster risk reduction program in a local village that does not was not prepared at all for the emergency and wouldn't be prepared in the future. Um, and they actually, we worked with them and they implemented this entire curricula that we designed in this community. So it's really the passing on of knowledge to the local community to then pass on to others in the local community. And I think that really shows the idea of, again, Israel and Israel and its core, they're not doing the work to get the credit for it. They're doing the work so that this impact really lasts. Um, as part of the humanitarian fellowship, it was 14 U.S college students that were spread in seven different countries that Israel's currently working in. And it was in Dominica, Puerto Rico, Mexico, in Guatemala, in Germany, Kenya, and in Greece. And now we were the last group to come home yesterday. And now we're working on our college campuses, really spreading awareness about the organization and the work it does. And also Israel's contribution to the innovation and all of the emergency response that it's doing across the world. Great. Thank you to Eliza Lava. Now, would you please welcome our second distinguished speaker, Matan Zamir, Deputy Counsel for Israel to the Pacific Northwest. Matan Zamir has served as the Deputy Chief of Mission at the Israeli Consulate to Mumbai and to New England. He grew up in Jerusalem, where his family has lived for nine generations. Before joining the Foreign Service, Deputy Consul General Matan Zamir led a decorated career in the Israel Defense Forces. He was an international business manager and the director of the training department of the Israeli Supreme Court, a position that was part of Israel's Center for Citizenship and Democracy. He received his law degree from Hebrew University in 2008. And like any passionate Israeli, Matan enjoys his basketball and upon moving to San Francisco, he became a proud Golden State Warrior fan. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Um, I want to say, before I start, thank you, Jonathan, Aliza, and Celia for inviting me on such a, it's a very slow news day in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good time just to sit and talk about, you know. Um, and... <laughs> 
so before I, I talk about what I chose to, um, to talk about, I want to say a word about Israel. And there's a, an image in my mind that I will never forget. It, and it's an image of uh, Israel volunteers on the, on the coast, on the beaches of Greece, uh, meeting the Syrian refugees. So I don't know how familiar you are with everything that's going on, but the, the course of those refugees is from Syria, escaping through, um, through Lebanon, through Turkey mostly, and then on the Mediterranean in boats that are like 12 persons boat with 50 or 60 and 70 people. A lot of them died drowning at sea because the boats were too crowded, fleeing the civil war and into the, into the islands of Greece. And there, the first people that, the first people that saw them are those Israeli volunteers with a big Star of David uh, on their T-shirt, taking them, giving them blankets, giving them food, uh, helping them on the coast of Greece. And for them, when growing up in Syria, they were taught that uh, Israel is, you know, there's the, the big devil and then the small devil, and Israel is all about to hurt them and, and do them harm. But then seeing volunteers with the Star of David for them was incredible. And we hear testimonies from those. And you talked about Greece, and many of them found their, find their ways into, into cities in, in Europe uh, where they get the secondary and social and mental re- relief and help uh, by, again, by Israel, Israel, Israel volunteers. And those who decided, again, it took them years after the civil war started to be brave and cross the border into the Golan Heights, into the field of, uh, into the land of Israel, um, they, the IDF recognized that more and more of them crossed the border into the Golan Heights and immediately built a field hospital to treat them, those who need just like, um, emergency care, but nothing, nothing severe. And those who actually needed uh, hospitalization and help uh, were evacuated into four different hospitals in the northern part of Israel. Uh, and I heard a lecture by Salman Zalka, who's Israeli Druze, and he was the commander of that field hospital that was built for the Syrian refugees at the Golan Heights. Thousands were treated there. And now he's the director general of the Ziv Hospital in Tzfat, which is a city in the northern part of Israel, also, uh, also treating, um, you know, treating Israeli patients, but also, uh, Syrian patients. And when he was asked, did you have a, cause we're talking about Syrian, enemy state, might be hostile, no. Uh, but he said when we saw these women, children, people crossing the borders with the way that they looked and, uh, we had, it was, it, there was a question, should we help them? Should we treat them, treat them like refugees or should we just treat them like any other Israelis that comes to the hospital? But it wasn't a real question. So we knew the answer immediately. We're going to treat them like anybody else. And without extra beds, no extra budget, no extra funding, no extra resources, um, those, uh, refugees who were brave enough to cross the border, got treatment in Israel, and then were able to cross back and reunite with their family. Some of them were uh, offered the, the opportunity to stay in Israel at least until the, the fighting is, is over, but they really wanted to go back and be with their families. In many cases, it was a mom and a few kids running for miles just to be able to cross the border and get, uh, and get medical refuge. So there was help by Israel aid, help by, uh, by the Israeli army, Israeli government. Um, unfortunately, there's still, every day we still hear uh, about the war that's been happening, still happening in, in Syria. Um, it's much more isolated today. You know, a few years ago it was all over the country, but there's still combat happening. Uh, so th- that's my, something that I will never forget about Israel. And obviously we work with Israel on a few projects. 
Um, I wanted to maybe emphasize, because when we talk about Israel's contribution to well-being, uh, we can sit here for hours, uh, which we won't. Um, but I chose to focus on the area of Mashav because Mashav and Mashav is Israel's um, arm for international development cooperation. That's the agency within the foreign ministry that deals with, uh, with basically Israel versions of U.S. aid um, that deals with, with you know international development. And it, Mashav was founded when Israel was only 10 years old in 1958. So. Very small country, very fragile, very few resources. But immediately uh, it was David Ben-Gurion and the foreign minister Golda Meir that I'm sure you've heard of decided, okay, let's, you know, it's now even though we're small, fragile, there's, you know, maybe not the best neighborhood, but we still need to do something to, um, and the idea over there back then was to fight world hunger. So Golda Meir had a historic trip to Africa, opened Mashav branches in the Israeli embassies in some of the countries. And since then, and now, just last year, we celebrated 60 years of Mashav, 70 years to the state of Israel and 60 years for Mashav. Um, uh, um, there was a, um, a celebration of you know, what Mashav was able to do in, in 60 years. And um, like I said, it started with the agenda to, fa- to fight hunger. Uh, and since even today, the resources that we have is limited compared to other other countries, you know, the, the, there's a theory of whether we give fish, we give nets, or we teach how to build fishing nets. So these are the three levels of international development theories. And from day one, Israel realized that what we're going to do is going to teach how to build nets. That's the idea. So even when we give uh, resources, usually, for example, I attended a school in, in Nairobi, Nigeria. I'll tell you a little bit more about that. And the idea was not just to give, uh, like, chicken to the kids for the, so that they'll have protein or, or eggs. It's not even the idea of giving um, chickens. It's the idea to give a hatchery. It was $1,000. Teach the people in the school how to maintain that hatchery, and then it's sustainable. So that was the idea behind Mashav from, for, for decades ago. Um, and Mashav, so the idea behind Mashav stands on two main pillars of what Israel is all about. One is the Israeli innovation. You know, those of you who have been to Israel know that when you talk to Israelis, either they have an idea for a startup, either they already have a startup, either they invest in a startup. So they're all like in a, there's a, there's a, there's a famous, I like it, a quote by Golda Meir. Um, she was sitting with one of the American presidents, and they were discussing which position is more difficult, to be the president of the United States or the prime minister of Israel. You know, they're arguing, and, and that president, I don't remember which one, but, uh, you know, he said, I'm the leader of the free world. I have, um, you know, back then, I was responsible of 200, of 200 million people. I have the red buttons, the, everything's red, you know, the overall, you know, my... The, that's my, you know, my position is much more difficult. And then Golda Meir said, and those of you who heard her speak, she was, you know, she had an attitude. Innovation is an attitude. And she said, uh, with all due respect, Mr. President, I mean, you might be the leader of the free world. You might be, um, you might be in charge of uh, 200 million uh, Americans, but I'm a prime minister of 6 million prime ministers. <laughs> so that's the whole idea behind, you know, what Israel innovation is all about. So that's one pillar. And as you've seen, in Israel innovation goes on 
every field, if it's medicine, if it's agriculture, Israel is famous for. Uh, I had a visit. I was consul general, uh, deputy consul general in Mumbai, in India. And I will never forget one day we, tr- we took a trip from the state of Mumbai to Maharashtra. That's where Mumbai, the city is. And then into uh, Madhya Pradesh, which is a state in the center of uh, India, very poor. We get to this cucumber farm. And we meet a farmer, and I mean, they, they arranged it for me, but I still, I still love that. And I met the farmer, and he, and he took me, he didn't have great English, so that, he could, that I could see that he has a Netafim dripping system, and that all he cares about is, is for his business, for his livelihood, for his family, is Israeli technology in, in agriculture. Uh, and Israel is famous in China, in India, in Africa for drip irrigation that's feeding the world. And Indian farmers that I've met sell in the same piece of land because of Israeli innovation. They can grow 10 times the crop, crop, whether it's cucumbers or I saw strawberries and, and, and citrus. Uh, so that's, so that's innovation, water, uh, healthcare, agriculture. So that's, and then the second part, and you've, you talked about it, is the tikkun olam, healing the world notion of, of Jew, core Jewish values that it's not only about what you do for yourself and for your household and for your family, it's also about doing something for the world. And, that's, uh, and it's a strong, strong value in, in Jewish heritage. And then we mix these two together. It's almost obvious that a 10-year-old country will open a development, opens a development agency and, and, starts, uh, and starts working uh, on, on development projects. Um, and so far, you know, we celebrated 60 years, more than 300,000, uh, um, we call it Mashav alumni. People were trained by Mashav from more than 140 countries. In some of them, Israel doesn't even have diplomatic relations with. Um, and it's on, on different, um, let's say, projects. But the main two ones that Mashav does, one is bringing... Uh, um, trainees to Israel. And trainees can be heads of states, education ministers, ministers of of agriculture, uh, up to farmers who come to Israel to train. Um, And mostly there are are three major centers of training, Mashab training centers in Israel. One of them is for agriculture. It's in in Shfaim. It's not far from Tel Aviv. And I attended a, a few hours of one of the courses, and it's hands-on type of training in agriculture with Israeli innovation, with, the, with drip irrigations, with uh, how you, uh, you saw the drones, the, the, how you um, fertilizers and pesticides and everything that has to do with agriculture. So that's one. There's the free center in Jerusalem for, for education. Uh, Israel has developed a lot of um, uh, experimental. Israel, actually, Israeli Ministry of, Edu- Ministry of Education has a whole experimental uh, division to it that just tests uh, Curriculums and, and, and ideas in, in education. So we have uh, annual conference for ministers of education who come and train at our free center. But d- different trainers and teachers and principals and supervisors and superintendents come to, to train about agriculture. And then, and one of my favorite ones, because I just came from there before coming to San Francisco, was the Golda Meir. It used to be called the Carmel, Mount Carmel Center for Training. But they call it after Golda Meir, who, like I said, kind of like launched Mashav to the world. And it's on Mount Carmel, it's in Haifa, and it's for, uh, mostly for uh, uh, empowering women, uh, social equality, 
there's amazing programs that are happening there. One program that I was able to kind of like uh, look at is Palestinian and Israeli women uh, trained in nursery, in, in social work, um, at the Kermit Center. They have delegations from all over the world. Like I said, 140 countries, uh, Latin America, Asia, uh, they all come to the Kermit Center. So these are the three main centers in Israel. On top of that, Israel sends trainers internationally. So I told you last year I was in, in Nairobi, in Kenya, as part of a delegation that we brought from I was in, when I was posted in Boston, young leaders from the community to see Mashav work on the ground and see a few projects. And actually now, as we speak, um, there is uh, the, the coalition against human trafficking here in San Francisco has brought a guest from Kenya. Her name is Moisha. She has an NGO called Diva's Power. She's a dancer. She, she teaches dancing. It, they're, having a, they're having their conference at... I mean, you chose the right event. You're here. That's great. Mm-hmm. But they're having their conference at City Hall. And she talks about how... Uh, she works with the, the Israeli embassy there but, and with Mashav, but also how she um, has 300 Kenyan kids in Nairobi, where other than training them to dance and hip-hop and, uh, and, and native dancing, she also helps them with hygiene and with food and with water and with access to medical care. Um, and, that's a, and that's a partnership. When you f- find leaders in the community, that's a partnership that uh, the embassy and Mashav has there on the ground. Um, what, what I remember from my visit, in, among other, and we've seen schools and NGOs, is how we send Israel send expert, water experts from the Israel Water Authority to show local water, Kenyan water experts, how there's one specific re- uh, river that comes from a city in Kisomo. It's the north, north from the northern part of, uh, of Kenya by Lake Victoria, and that water pollutes that river pollutes Lake Victoria severely. Uh, lake Victoria is extremely polluted. It has, it, the lake borders a few countries, but that specific, because there's a sugarcane factories, and sugarcane, I didn't know that, is an industry that extremely pollutes water resources. So those water um, experts from Israel came, stayed there for a few weeks, took samples, had trainings, with sessions with uh, Kenyan lo- uh, water experts to kind of like show them the technologies and the way that they can prevent this extreme pollution into Lake Victoria. That, um, so, so that's the second part. So having these trainings in Israel, having these trainings in on the ground. The last thing I'll talk about correlates, like I'll close it with what Aliza talked about, and that's Israel's uh, international health development. And because I have a personal experience that, you know, Israel was on the ground in Haiti first and in Japan after the nuclear disaster, uh, Turkey, you know, much, many years ago. But when I was in Mumbai, it was 2015, uh, there was the earthquake in Kathmandu in Nepal. And Israel sent immediate. It, with Israel, it's the day after they're on, like, the, like uh, as I said, first on the ground. So they sent airplanes from Israel to stop fueling in Mumbai, and then from there to Nepal, to Kathmandu. And I met them because I was in charge of making sure that they can land safely in Mumbai, get rice, get supplies, get bags of, of food, and then from there fly to Nepal. And I, I wanted to, make, to meet those teams, those crews, ask them how they, like, if they need anything. They didn't want to talk to me. They were so into their cause of leaving everything as soon as possible, getting everything on the plane as, as fast as possible, and then... Um, fly to Kathmandu to give help. So that is the mindset. And I, you know, I heard about it, I read about it, I met, but when you see it in action and when you meet the plan, uh, the people at the airport and, and seeing them, like their desire and their ambitions to just go and start working and open the field hospital and starting treating people, uh, it's something that I will never forget. 
You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Now it's time for our question and answer period. We have a few questions here, so let's begin. One, one question that is up here for both of you is any uh, maybe success stories or obstacles with the language barriers or cultural barriers in terms of uh, um, coming from Israel or, or working with people from Israel who you know, generally speak Hebrew or, or Arabic and then dealing with all the different people of the world that you're, that you're impacting? What I think is really incredible about Israel is the diversity of the staff. And as I said before, a lot of the staff, the majority of the staff comes from the country that we're working in. Um, so for me personally, I don't speak Spanish. Um, and going to Guatemala, it was definitely a big language barrier. Uh, my other fellow I was in Guatemala with, he speaks Spanish fluently, so half act as a translator. Um, but I think for me, it was actually a really incredible experience in some ways not to speak the language because I think being there, I noticed a lot of things that I don't know if I would have noticed um, had I been able to speak Spanish and really communicate with people that way. And instead, I found other ways to communicate with people. Um, when we worked with our kids in the child-friendly space, there's a kind of bond there that kind of transcends the need for language. Um, and I don't think I they got anything less out of the experience or I got anything less in a lot of ways, you know, sharing a smile and a laugh and playing a game and using your limited knowledge of each other's language. It works and it works really well. Um, and in the emergency drills in these different schools, I think I was able to notice a lot um, to give constructive feedback to uh, the people that we were working with that the people that spoke Spanish didn't necessarily see because they were really focused on the words that were happening. Um, so it was a really unique opportunity personally for me to be in that position. But I think for the organization as a whole, when in Guatemala, actually Guatemala is a big fan of Israel. So it's not as much of an issue of coming in with the big Jewish star in the back of your t-shirt. Um, but in other countries that Israel works in, it definitely is. And I think as you brought up, it really breaks down a lot of barriers and it breaks down a lot of barriers between Israelis who are working on the staff and also between the people who are being helped. And for the staff as a whole, they come from all the local communities. So they're always able to communicate properly and effectively and do the aid. But I think that the language barrier and the different cultures coming together actually creates a more deeply meaningful relationship for the organization. Yeah, the one thing I'll add is that, you know, Mashab worked through the embassies on the ground. And in the embassies, like in the consulate here, we always have the Israeli staff and the local staff. For example, uh, the Mashab attache in Nairobi that I, it's easier for me to talk about because I was there is, is an amazing uh, Nairobian lady who coordinates everything and in touch with all the organizations and the NGOs and the schools. And so the work is being done by, by the Israelis, but in many cases it's done by the Israelis and a lot of like local staffers, so that helps. I'm happy that you didn't ask, you asked about language barrier, not cultural No, barrier. I said both. Cul then, <laughs> ah, culture, so that's a whole, because Israelis have cultural barriers, everybody else in the world. <laughs> and we don't have to get into that, but <laughs> when... <laughs> 
and those who left know what I, what I mean. But uh, we don't, I, with the cultural barriers, there's always, with, you know, when two people meet from different countries, there's always a cultural barrier. Uh, but I think Israelis are so informal that they'll give up their cultural barrier and so direct that it's usually, you know, usually we, it's like a, a smile and a hug and, a, you know, that works. Great. Now, you both mentioned the concept of tikkun olam. And do people ask when you're, you know, giving away all this expertise or advice or help why you're here and, it, you know, the, the concept of tikkun olam, how does that, does that, is that a hard one to explain? Are people surprised? I mean, can you share any stories about that and what it means to you, maybe the Israeli people and the recipients? So the concept of tikkun olam is something that we in Israel, and I think a lot of um, just people in Israel just grew up with since like, since day one, uh, it's about, you know, either it, like the most obvious way of doing it is give to charity, but it's not just about charity. It's a lot more than that. It's about a mindset of, okay, so we're doing it for ourselves, but what can we do for others? And that's the, and the idea. So it's very easy to, it's very easy to explain to people who do my shop work because then, you know, it's the work itself explains the concept but uh for us as people who talk about it um i think it's one of the easiest things to explain it's just it's all about just doing good and sharing uh what you have with the ref with the rest of the world you know in, when it comes to like in, in like the innovation for example drip irrigation is an, an independent that could be easily sold for a lot of money uh to a lot of countries and but the idea behind once these kind of technologies developed in israel the idea is how can we spread it as much as possible? Enjoy some of the profits, enjoy some, but also allow the work, to allow the world, uh, the benefits of these of these uh, inventions and technology. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I would add to that is I think also, as I'd spoken about before, Israel uses a lot of methodologies used to deal with trauma and resiliency in Israel, and I think that Israelis understand a lot of the trauma that other communities are going through. And because of the whole idea of tikkun olam, it's, it's a, it's not even a want, it's a responsibility to help others. And I think that that's the reason that that's how it is. Sure. Uh, Maybe you can both touch on the fact that, you know, Mashav is more of an official government uh, entity and Israel aid, I'm guessing is an NGO or a nonprofit of sorts. If you were an Israeli, would you, choose one or the other how, how do you distinguish and for example eliza how did you choose israel from all the many israeli uh ngos and nonprofits that were out there um yes yeah, so israel is an ngo and it's a political um there's no they don't get any funding from the israeli government all that comes from either private donors uh un organizations or also some other governments that we work in their um countries, but not from the Israeli government. I think for me, Israel does an incredible job of there's the two parts of it. The aid is so unique the way it's approached with the first in the last out and really strengthening local capacities, um, but not coming in as a huge organization with a big staff and kind of not understanding what's happening on the ground. There's, it's totally, it's all about understanding what the local community wants and needs and catering to that. Um, At the same time, I think an organization that goes in with 
no political motive and no political ties, but also, as you said before, people wearing shirts that say Israel and have a Jewish star on them are the first hand to reach out when Syrian refugees are coming out of the water in Greece. I think that paints Israel and showcases and highlights all the work Israel's doing, but Israel's not gaining anything directly from this organization. It's not tied to the government in any way, but it really, really showcases the Israeli spirit and the Israeli mind of truly just wanting to help. And I think that's, for me, why Israel has always stuck out to me. I agree. I'll just add that, uh, you know, we are proud of the fact that we as a government can help and we have Mashav and there's other, um, there are a lot of programs where the Israeli government is uh, work, uh, um, practicing tikkun olam, you know, on on a daily basis. But we're very proud of uh, Israel's um, um, NGO uh, sector is 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 amazing and there's organizations like Israel and others that do this work uh, completing or um, uh, not in line politically but in line in terms of values of the work that they're doing uh, so then one completes the other so there's a great kind of like symbiosis between uh, between the, the public sector the government and then the NGOs wonderful I remember uh once a few years ago, I was in a hotel in Tel Aviv, and in the breakfast room is filled with uh, women doctors from Africa. And, and they were, it, it took up the whole space. They were very friendly, very happy to be in Israel. And I'm just wondering, since this program has touched so many lives over 60 years, as you say, you right. know, over 200,000, 300,000 participants, right. have you seen long-term success stories in terms of building those relations with people that are... that? that have strengthened both both countries? Absolutely. So I'll give you an example. When I was in India, Israel has 28 centers of excellence for agriculture all over India. And the idea behind that is a lot of the farmers can't come to Israel and get their agricultural training in Israel. There's flight, there's costs, and a lot of the Indian farmers are still extremely poor. So the idea between, uh, and there are centers of excellence in, in, in Africa and other countries too, but the idea behind those centers of excellence in India is to have those trainers that were trained in Israel to allow them, some of them, to also train farmers in, in the communities and then circulate it and create the impact that you, that you were asking about. So the 300,000 that I've mentioned is only the number of actual trainees who, who were trained directly by Mashav. But I'm sure there are tens of millions of secondary trainees who got their training from those farmers who came to Israel or those farmers who met Israeli agriculture experts in, in India, for example. Um, so the impact is sustainable because um, the technologies are on the ground. You see Israeli technology in agriculture, for example, and in healthcare and other all over the world. They u- they're using it. It's, they know how to use it. It's, you know, it's practical. It's, it's daily, and it, and it bears you know, results. So you see that, you see the sustainability and you see the impact. Great. And for Eliza, you just, you're fresh back from Guatemala. Can you recall maybe one or two of your most, you know, your, your most treasured memories of being there and, and seeing that direct impact of, of what you've done? Yeah. Um, so the, I think for me, one thing, and it's a small thing, but I think has a significant impact. The final project that me and my um, other fellow did was, I have a passion for photography and I started bringing my camera to the field when we were working in the child friendly space. Um, and these kids smiles are just 
the most incredible thing in the entire world. Um, and I started capturing them and also teaching them a bit about how to use the camera. So some pictures were taken by them. Um, and all of their homes were completely destroyed and they didn't have time to take anything with them. Um, and before the volcano eruption occurred, they weren't from the most affluent communities. They were very underlooked by the government. And these families lost all their possessions. So we did a final photography exhibit where we printed all of the photos and did a creative art workshop with the mothers and the kids. And many of these photos were the first photos that these families had of themselves or of their kids. Um, and although it wasn't aid in the form of, you know, direct psychosocial support or medical supplies, I think it gives back a piece of their resiliency and a piece of their feeling whole again. And I think that that was a really incredible experience for me because to give people something so small that really changes the way that they can then look at their life moving forward and having something like this was a really significant impact for me. Great. Matan, um, if we turn a little bit to what Israel's famous for in many countries, for in many countries, maybe even California, is the drip technology and water conservation. Right. Do you know, um, do you have any knowledge of how that's impacted California for, uh, you know, people in this room and maybe our listening audience in terms of what Israel's contributions have been to improve our lives here? Yeah, so in terms of like the area of water, I'll maybe say there are three main areas that Israel specializes in. One is the drip irrigation technology that we talked about uh, for agriculture. The second one is uh, water so water um, recycling. I don't know if you know the statistic, but Israel is first in the world in terms of uh, reuse of sewage water. So Israel reuses 90% of its sewage water. The second country in the world is Spain with 25%. So uh, when you go in, when you visit Israel, you see two sets of pipes. They're blue pipes, which is pure drinking water. And the second one is purple pipes that are reused water. It's the same quality. There's obviously a psychological barrier that that's why these purple water are used for agriculture and for industry. So they're using clean, treated water. Uh, and that's a technology when you have a, sit, um, a situation of drought like we have in California, uh, this technology comes handy for agriculture and industry. And the third area is desalinization. So using treating seawater in order to have clean, clean using energy and then having cleaning drinking water for residential use. Because in Israel during the 90s, there was a very severe water crisis, just like we have in California. Um, at least uh, two or three years ago, it was extremely hard. And it got to a point in the 90s that I, as a kid, remember that there was a campaign all over Israeli news that it's uh, very much uh, required or almost, um, Israelis are almost uh, obliged to shower in couples. Some people liked it more, some people liked it less, but that was, <laughs> so it was a severe water crisis during the 90s. And back then, the Israeli government made the decision that we're going to build five uh, desalinization plants on the coast of the Mediterranean, four on the coast of the Mediterranean, one in Eilat, which is in the most, it's the Red Sea, it's a border with, uh, with Egypt and, uh, and Jordan. And since then, these, these um, plants were built, and today, I'm not sure of the number, but more than 50% of Israel's water uh, usage for, um, for residential is from treated seawater. Sea 
Uh, so these technologies combined uh, were um, a focus of discussion between California's official and Israel's official, and the technologies, the know-how has been you know, transferred and discussed. Uh, what we are actually just... Uh, to take a side note, because I think what we are now learning, the Israelis are learning from the Californians, had nothing to do with water, is um, emergency preparedness. So there's a delegation, because this is where California has a lot of its expertise, so we bring a delegation, the consulate, to Sacramento to learn uh, a lot about how, because there has been some uh, minor earthquakes in Israel in the past year, uh, and that's a lot we can learn from how um, to, to better prepare ourselves. to. So there's what I'm, it's a mutual change of know-hows and technologies. Great. Thank you. Um, I've been to one of those plants, the desal plants on the Mediterranean next to the power plant. Right. And um, I brought a whole troop of students, and we turned on the spigot and, and tasted the water, which I understand <laughs> you can't drink unless the minerals are actually added, added. back in because right. the water is too right. pure to drink. And now, now there's a whole debate in Israel about fluoride, yes, no, potassium, yes, no. So which minerals to add, uh, teeth, but also kids and what it causes. Um, but yes, yes, the minerals are added. Correct. Right. Um, so if we look back, I liked your analogy between the, you know, the fish, the fishing net and how to make the fishing nets. Right. I wonder if there's actually even one more level deeper, which is, for example, we, you mentioned entrepreneurship, startups, and how Israel invests, I think, 4.5% of its GDP on research and right. development, which is one of the highest, if not the highest, yes. in the world. So Israel's obviously created a very fertile uh, uh, environment for startups and for uh, the, the uh, trying new things and potentially making mistakes and sometimes making huge successes. So if we were to actually extend your, your example even one level further, it would be how do you create an environment that is more similar to Israel? Has there been any discussions about how to do that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of the main focuses of our, um, as part of Mashav, the idea behind the Free Center in Jerusalem is how you teach entrepreneurship. Some people will tell you you cannot teach entrepreneurship. It's either in your you know, value, heritage, cult culture, like the Israeli culture of arguing and disagreeing and a lot of arguing and then some more arguing, or it's something that, I mean, or it's something that can be taught to to other countries. And I think it's obviously it's a little bit of both, but there's a lot that can be taught when it comes to entrepreneurship. For example, when I was in India for two years, the, you know, how you used to say about the Jewish mom that wants the kids to be doctor or, or a lawyer, and now it's an entrepreneur. <laughs> so the, with the Indian mother, it's about being an engineer. And being an engineer, being an, being an employee, in like the Indian kind of like, uh, and once you graduate from a university in India, if you become an, inter an engineer, then you did good in life, you're going to have a good salary. And it takes time for the, Indians, the, the Indian society, even though they're also like very much like Israelis about you know, arguing and disagreeing and there's debates and it's like a live democracy and, and political system. Uh, but there's still this thing about being an engineer or being um, uh, an employee. And this is something that the Indian society, I'm not saying because of Israel, but Israel, you know, the, the Indian prime minister talked about how India has a lot to learn from the entrepreneurial spirit of Israel and implement in the system. It takes time, talking about 1.2 billion people, but 
But that's the idea behind seeing Israel as an example, having countries come, see the startup nation, visit. And it's important to say because you said it, you saw it in the clip. You know, a few years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, when you talked about the innovation um, ecosystem in Israel, the startup nation, usually people talked about Tel Aviv, described Tel Aviv. And in the past 10, 15 years, uh, the idea was to allow more um, uh parts of the Israeli society, more um, periphery geographically, but also social, to c- take part of what Israel ecos- the innovation ecosystem in Israel is all about. So the Cyber Center for Israel is in Be'er Sheva. There's ultra-Orthodox taking part of, uh, of uh, learning high-tech, but also practicing and working in the high-tech. Uh, Israeli Arabs. So a lot of layers of Israeli society are taking part of the ecosystem. That It's kind of like to answer your question, because even within Israel, there was this... That we had, to, there was the ecosystem in Tel Aviv, very central, that we wanted the Israeli government and to spread, and it's been spreading. Great, thank you. Um, unfortunately, we only have time for one more question, so here's the last question. Uh, Eliza, as a college student, um, what would you say if you were, spe- well, you were going to be speaking to your peers very soon about Israel aid, and uh, in terms of what you got out of the experience, whether, and is it open to Jewish students or only, or is it open to all students, and why? Why, why do what you've done? What would you say to your peers? Um, so the Humanitarian Aid Fellowship, it's open to any American college student. So actually the pool of people who are a fellow is incredibly diverse. Um, my colleague in Guatemala is a Puerto Rican, now lives in Chicago Catholic. Um, and so he had never really, he didn't really know anything about Israel and honestly grew up pretty progressively and didn't necessarily understand all that Israel does in terms of humanitarian aid. So I think for both the fellows and then now our role going back to our college campus and talking about our experience, um, I think as we know on college campuses in the U.S., it's not always the most friendly to Israel. Um, And as being a Jewish student too, it's not always the um, friendliest space to be a part of. And I think bringing a part of what Israel does and what's so central to Israel's identity, which is this humanitarian aid and focusing on that and highlighting that and not, you know, pushing aside the politics, but also bringing this up, I think is really crucial. And I think that's how now our, our job in the field was really to 100% be there for the work that we are doing. And now our job here is kind of to represent this work because Israel does so much incredible work, but it's focused on the work and less focused on, you know, showing the people like what the work we do. Um, And I think that's, as someone who's an American Jew who cares passionately about Israel, who cares passionately about tikkun olam, I think that's kind of such a important role that I can now play is to share that part with my peers because I don't think it's a part that enough people really understand about Israel and really understand how central this is to Israel's identity. Thank you. And thank you to our distinguished speakers, Matan Zamir, Deputy Consul General for Israel to the Pacific Northwest, and to Eliza Lauder, Israel Aid Humanitarian Fellow in Guatemala. We also thank our audience here and those listening to the recording and on the internet. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.